Hey there, are you a holistic badass? Well, I think you are, and I think that you could get a lot of information from my podcast right here called Holistic Badass. My name is Lori, and I bring to you a podcast that offers up all kinds of information on assorted alternative, natural, complementary health med- methods that you can incorporate into your life and make it just a little more holistic. And you know what would help me out? Go ahead and hit like on this episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. In fact, if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, you can find me at The Herb Chick LLC or Lori The Herb Chick on just about every social media site out there. Go ahead and Google me, you'll find me, and let's keep in touch. Hey, all you holistic badasses. How have you been? Really, how have you been? I have been running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Let's just say that nailing down people to a designated time to be on my podcast is a lot harder than what you think. People just are not real readily available to chit chat with me. But I am here today and I am going to share a little bit about reflexology, which is a service that I offer. Please keep in mind that The majority of what you're about to hear today is my opinion, okay? I have some research on the origins and some different studies and such that I will share, but it is my opinion and should not be used as medical advice. It's advice coming from a natural health consultant. It's different, complimentary, possibly alternative but definitely out there to assist you. So without further ado, let's get to all this stuff that I recorded for you. The information presented in this podcast is for informational and self-education use only. It is not intended for self-diagnosis nor treatment nor anything that constitutes the practice of medicine. Please consult with a qualified physician concerning the prudence of and before undertaking any major changes in diet, any treatments for disease, any use of drugs or prescription items or the cessation thereof. Hey, all you holistic badasses. Today, I want to talk to you guys about something that I offer as part of my services. I know I talk to a lot of different people who offer different types of services, but today I want to talk about reflexology. Maybe this is something you have heard of. Maybe this is something you've even done. But today, I want to take a little time to talk about it. Now, I have been in contact with reflexology since I was a little girl. 
Okay, no, I wasn't massaging feet when I was five. However, that would be cool, right? But no, um, when I was growing up, there was a lady that lived down the road and I grew up in a very rural farming community. This lady that lived down the road offered reflexology and since she lived very local, once in a while, my mom and dad would call her and she would come down and they would pay her to do their feet. Um, you can't see my air quotes, but she was doing their feet, right? So by doing their feet meant that she would take about 45 minutes per person and do a very in-depth, detailed, and time-consuming massage on their feet. And at the time, I thought, this is crazy. What's up with my parents? Uh, for context, I should add that I am the youngest of six children and that my father turned 46 months after I was born. So like where my older siblings got to see my parents in their heyday, I got to see them with all of their health issues. So a lot of my upbringing was involved in my parents' seeking assistance for aches and pains because they were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And so I got dragged along for all of that because, you know, where else was I going to be? So anyways, this lady down the road would come and work on their feet. She sold supplements from a popular multi-level brand that is still in existence today. It's one of the few brands that I do tolerate uh, that do multi-level. And let me tell you, there's only like two that I can tolerate on multi-level. The rest of them are all a bunch of hooey. But anyways, she would come, she would work on their feet and she would tell them things like, wow, that really feels like a lot going on in that lung area or that lower back. I, I don't know, Ivo. That's my dad's name. Um, you know, things like that. So it always struck me as very interesting. And my father from when I was very young and I would sit there and I would watch, he would tell me, now you sit here and you watch how she does this because someday you're going to have to do this. Of course, at the time I thought he was full of crap, but you know, hey, guess what? I'm doing it. So let's talk about reflexology. Where did it come from? Okay, where, where? Did reflexology come from? Did somebody just pull a story out of their butt crack and say, here it is, this is reflexology, and here's some load of bunk behind what it is, some beautiful mystical story about how it was created? Well, yes and no. Okay, so because reflexology is known to be an ancient practice, the origins and history are a little murky. We're pretty sure that it comes from India, China, and Egypt. Most of it is passed down through oral tradition. However, there is a pictograph um, that has been found. It's on the tomb of and I'm probably butchering this, Ankamora, that has, like, it looks like foot massage happening, along with, like, some other quasi-medical or body care type stuff. There's 
also reflexology like symbols that are recorded on some of the statues of Buddha in India and then of course into China. For those of you who are not aware with geography, aren't that great of it, they are neighbors. Okay, and in certain areas of those countries, ideas and ideologies did flow back and forth what we consider a boundary. Because in real life, those boundaries aren't there. It's not like there's a big yellow painted line, right? I mean, there is now probably with fencing and stuff. But at that time, there was not a big yellow painted line that says you all are Chinese, you all are Indian, right? Totally different. The traveling of these ideas and such happened with trade. And as people migrated and moved from place to place, these practices went with them. There is a Chinese classic called the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. It is said to have been written around 1000 BC, and it has an entire chapter on examining foot method. And it's part of some of the beginnings of the discussion about the connection of life force in different points, areas on the feet, maybe the dawning of acupuncture points. We don't know, but we know that that is there. Um, it is believed, which means we're pretty sure and it's pretty plausible that Marco Polo translated a Chinese massage book into Italian in the 1300s, therefore bringing reflexology and massage to Europe. We do know in 1582, a book on an integral element of reflexology called Zone Therapy was first published in Europe by Dr. Adamus and Dr. Atatus. Okay, so that's been a long time, 1582. There is a gentleman who was in the United States in 1917 who wrote about 10 vertical zones that extended the length of the body. So what he did was, you know, you kind of look at a model of the human body. So let's say that you had a 3B, 3D, not 3B, 3D as in duck, clay model of a human body, right? So he went through and pretty much sliced that body into vertical sections, right? So let's just say he took a, a scalpel and sliced that clay exactly vertical, one right down the middle, five on each side, right? So that's 10 sections total. Each toe being in a zone, right? Each finger in a zone. He found that metaphorically, he didn't really actually do that to any body, but you know, metaphorically, visually, let's visualize that. However, he found that the application of pressure to one zone that corresponded to the location of an old injury or current injury could kind of serve as pain relief during minor surgeries. So let's say you got stabbed in the shoulder and you need stitches, right? Let's say, and he would put pressure on the zone. So that shoulder area would be like the outside piggy toe area and the knuckle behind that. Okay. So 
technically that would be your fifth metatarsal on the corresponding foot and also the phalange in that area and then back proximal towards the heel. See, I can be real technical when I want to. But um, when you put pressure in that area, it could have taken a little bit of pain off. Now, this is a for instance, okay? I'm just pulling that as an example, illustrating what this research has told me. Um, Dr. Fitzgerald's work was expanded on by Dr. Shelby Riley, and he went through and developed that map of the horizontal zones going across the body. And of course, he's going horizontal. Fitzgerald went vertical. Um, I'm not sure in my notes if that is a typo about Dr. Riley, um, but everyone is quoting horizontal. So who knows? Um, I'm going to guess that one of them was thinking vertical and the other one broke it up into areas of the head, the chest, the torso, and the pelvic region, right? That's as far as I can tell with what I have looked up. He went ahead and mapped that out with uh, some very detailed reflex points on the feet and also the hands, okay? He also suggested that there were pressure points on the outer ear. This is where you catch up to the way I was taught. There was a woman named Eunice Ingham. She was a physiotherapist who worked for Dr. Riley. Um, her research with zone therapies, pressure points, was started with family. Okay, there's a whole entire book called Stories the Feet Have Told, right? And there's also another book on the Ingham method. Um, she found that the feet were the most sensitive and the most responsive. And she developed the most of the foot maps and charts that we have today. And those were dispersed to the non-medical community in the 1930s. Okay. In 1957, there was a Dr. Paul Nagier or Nagier. I'm not sure how to say that. Maybe it was Nogier. Um, he recorded a reflex map of points on the outer ear. Also very important to reflexology. His work has been expanded by Olison and Flacco and is now being taught as part of an integrated approach to hand, ear, and foot reflexology. Okay, now I looked this up in a couple of different spots. And like I said, I got into this in my 20s, like hardcore beyond just my father telling me stuff about it. You know, like, hey, you watch and figure this out. But in my 20s, I was voracious. I wanted every book I can possibly get my hands on. I have some wonderful ladies who were my mentors and I just wanted to learn everything I possibly could about everything natural health, right? So if you've listened to any of my previous podcast episodes, you've heard how I wanted to be a one-stop shop. Like somebody would call me for a service and I wanted to be able to offer it, no matter the service, right? Which I later in my 30s recognized is a futile pursuit. However, reflexology is one of them that stuck with me. So 
I came in to it reading uh, the book by Eunice Ingham, also reading the Ingham Technique um, practical manuals, basically, and learning from people who were taught in the Ingham Method. I will have to say, um, trying to figure out the best way to say this, without being too long-winded. Oh, well, whatever, I'm just gonna be long-winded. In my 20s, I had my hair done and colored and cut at the salon and my eyebrows waxed and I got pedicures and manicures and all of that. And as my age progressed and I got divorced and was a single mom and, you know, I had to let some stuff go, man. I had to figure out how to do some of that self-care myself, like my hair and my nails. But you want to know what I kept? I kept reflexology religiously. Once a month, I have reflexology done for me. I don't do it for myself. Well, I mean, I do. But once a month, I have someone else do it for me. Because sometimes it helps to have someone else work on you. The angles are different. Uh, what they feel is different. All of it is different. So I go see someone and she does my feet. Uh, she's my mother's cousin and one of my mentors in my natural health journey. So that helps. But I've always thought, you know, if I'm going to be jettisoning things for self-care, that's when I have to hang on to because I feel better afterwards. I just feel better. So let's talk about the chart a little bit. Any of you guys can go online and you can Google reflexology chart and you're going to get the feet. That's the most common one. And while you can get results by having reflexology on the hands and different pressure points on the ear, I mean, let's face it, guys, if it's one thing that we've made very clear in my podcast through every episode is everything relates back to everything, which relates back to everything, which relates back to everything else. We are all interconnected everywhere all the time. You do not have a separate kidney department. You do not have a separate endocrine department. You do not have a separate circulatory system. While we learn about all of these bodily systems and bodily functions in like a compartmentalized department store type of atmosphere, all these things have to focus they have to function together at one time to keep you moving. So while we are a loosely woven canvas of atoms that are being smashed and held together by the sheer energy of the universe, all of those little atoms get together and they make all these tiny little parts and pieces and specialized tissues. And these tissues have reasons to be and they do things and we have to take care of them. But meanwhile, they're talking to each other. They're sending signals to each other. They're interdependent. 
Heck, even your kidneys makes hormones. Hormones, y'all. You want to know what they makes hormones for? It makes hormones that tells your body how much red blood cells that needs to have and how many to produce. Yep, it's called erythropoietin. It's made in your kidneys. So y'all, you ain't as departmentalized as you think. It all works together. It all influences each other. You can't escape it. You just can't. Anywho, you can pull up this chart because the feet chart is the easiest one to find. And if you plug in reflexology chart, 90% of them are going to be the feet. I found that at least Americans, in my opinion, abuse the hell out of their feet. We work long hours. We take insufficient breaks. We think working 14 hours on concrete nonstop is some sort of ticket to martyrdom that will buy us some sort of golden ticket. I don't know. We're just crazy. And we are glorified and praised for causing ourselves pain in the name of work and productivity. When we probably would get more work done and be more productive if we just freaking took care of ourselves. But I have found in that because we are that way, our feet hurt. Yo, dude, our feet just freaking hurt. So yeah, it's going to feel really good when somebody works on your feet. You're really going to get relaxation because those dogs hurt, man. So most of the time people are going to come see me for reflexology. They will ask for foot reflexology. I am able to also do the hands, but like a lot of the writings from all of those people I mentioned, the feet seem to be the more reactive and seems to have the best results for people. And don't forget the ears, peep. The ear reflexology is very interesting to me, and I've often thought about having certain areas pierced to see if there would be some sort of permanent result. I I'm still toying with that idea. Um, I'm not a big fan of looking like a pincushion, but if I could stimulate a, a couple of areas like permanently, I, I maybe it would work. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. So let's talk about reflexology evidence. Reflexology is somewhat, I don't want to say somewhat difficult to study, but you know, there's a, this big crackdown on benefit claims, right? Like, uh, Certain words you can't say, so you're not practicing medicines, as well as certain things you cannot say about reflexology. However, I can point to scientific research that has been published, right? Any of you guys ever want to check out research on alternative health that's been published, please go check out PubMed. Uh, the National Institute for Health has a 
complementary medicine office that specializes in making this information available. It is not all hooey. I don't give a rat's ass who told you that, if, they've, if you've heard that. All research is valuable research. The people who say that it's being manipulated don't know how to read the studies. That's all I've got to say. You've got to look at sample size. You have to look at P-scores. You have to look at reliability and what kind of study it is. And if you have a study and you're not sure what it says or whether or not it's very reliable, please send it to me because I spent a long time in college learning how to read these. So the benefits that they see mainly for reflexology um, come down to pretty much stress relief. That has been scientifically shown to be decreased with reflexology. Uh, according to this paper, which is, let me scroll up here, Revisiting Reflexology, Concept, Evidence, Current Practice, and Practitioner Training was published in the Journal of Traditional and Complementary Medicine in October 2015. I know that's a little dated. Usually you want to stay within the last five years, but this is within the last 10. Um, they have here that stress continue, contributes up to 80% for the development of any illness. The other 20% of illness will influence other conditions. Sorry, I have a cat jumping on my back. Reflexology offers common benefits, and one of them is reducing stress by applying pressure to the specific area at feet and hands, which may induce general relaxation while relaxing the targeted area concurrently. Reflexology is one of the ways to interrupt the pattern of repetitive stress that people usually have according to their lifestyle. That's that work thing, hours on, on their feet. They will operate more effective with a number of reflexology sessions because the first application will intervene the stress operation and further sessions will improve the body condition. Besides, reflexology also allows the body to get off from any stress in everyday life. I think to get off, I mean, they mean like to remove yourself from it. Uh, it also goes into uh, its ability to assist and maintain dexterity and locomotion availability. That would be uh, a benefit to your range of motion. Um, it stimulates the release of the body's pain-relieving chemicals. Those would be endorphins, y'all. It can be used, and some people have used it, as a prevention from any illness. It also promotes the recovery process from injuries, especially those at your hands and feet. I mean, come on. There's specifically reflex areas for lymph glands, groin, fallopian tubes, around the wrist or the ankle. The, these things have been looked at by people for ages. So while you may not buy into the entire practice of it, my gosh, 
wouldn't it be great just to not have your feet hurt? This particular paper that I'm looking at looked at studies where uh, reflexology was used for low back pain management, migraines or headaches, stroke, um, stroke recuperation, stress reduction, multiple sclerosis, peripheral neuropathy and diabetes mellitus, asthma. Come on, people. These things... These are things that have been shown to benefit from reflexology, among other things. So now, is it any wonder why I didn't want to stop doing it? Sorry, I have a 20-pound cat who is an attention hog. But is it any wonder why I refuse to stop doing it for my own self-care? Yo, I don't need to have the best looking hair or my eyebrows don't need to be on fleek my whole life, but I don't want to feel like shit 24-7. So I refuse to give up reflexology for myself. And in fact, it works so well that I offer it for my clients. Looking at reflexology research, just scrolling through specific studies. A lot of these came out of the early 2000s that I'm looking at. So they're within the last, oh, I think the earliest one here is listed 2003. So that would be the last 20 years. Uh, we have randomized controlled trial examining the effects of reflexology on anxiety of parents, patients undergoing coronary angiography. Biopsies of foot deposits reveal organic composition and mechanism of action for reflexology. I'm going to read that one. Comparing the effects of reflexology and relaxation on fatigue in women with multiple sclerosis, determination of efficacy of reflexology and managing patients with diabetic neuropathy, a randomized controlled clinical trial. Effects of foot reflexology for high blood pressure. Efficacy of reflexology and prevention of post-operative post nausea. Epilepsy case studies. Exploratory study on the efficacy of reflexology for pain threshold and tolerance using an ice pain experiment and sham tens control. Okay, it goes on and on and on. The effect of reflexology on pain intensity and duration of labor on prima paris. Okay? These are important contributions that reflexology can offer. And it's been on the rise. A lot of alternative health practices are becoming more and more mainstream, more and more popular, and reflexology is along in that. It also has been becoming more and more popular, right? I mean, um, the first known scientific study on reflexology uh, being presented in a peer-reviewed journal, it was in Obstetrics and Gynecology, it was authored by Terry Olson, PhD, and William S. Flacco of the American Academy of Reflexology in 1993. 
It was a randomized controlled study of premenstrual symptoms treated with ear, hand, and foot reflexology that demonstrated a significantly greater decrease in premenstrual symptoms for the women given true reflexology treatment versus women in the placebo group. I'm not real sure what the placebo group would have. I don't have the full paper in front of me right now. Uh, The research study concluded reflexology is indicated for women suffering from PMS. Dude. PMS. So much easier to get through it with a little bit of reflexology. That is one of the reasons why I continued. It made things a little more bearable. So are there contraindications to reflexology? You bet, dude. You bet. There are certain points that you don't want to hit if you are a pregnant woman because they would possibly stimulate early labor. You don't want to do that. So make sure if you're expecting at all that you tell your reflexologist that you are expecting. Um, That way they cannot hit that point. I know where that point is. I'm not telling all y'all where that point is. You can go talk to your reflexologist. There's also restrictions when working on children. You obviously do not go as deep. You do not go as long. It's uh, more just like a gentle little rub. You do not work on newborn babies. Um, You know, you could hurt children under a certain age. So make sure you talk to your reflexologist. And a good reflexologist will tell you, hey, I've worked on small kids. We just do it very short, very light, or um, we're not going to do that. They're too little. You know, all the, there are restrictions, right? There are restrictions. I ask my clients, have you had any injuries to your feet? Like breaks, stitches. Have you had any surgeries done to your feet? Especially those that may result in long-term pins, screws, or plates, anything of that nature. Because even though I may find them and I can feel them when I hit them, I don't want to cause undue pain. I don't want it. It's not fun for me to watch my client scream out in pain or writhe uncomfortably in in their seat. I want them to be relaxed. So I'll ask because, you know, I want to go around that area. Also, if anything is hot, swollen, um, is hot to the touch, has a red area, anything that would be indicative of a blood clot or say like an infection, maybe like what you would see with cellulitis, we're going to avoid that, right? Um, In fact, that would be where your reflexologist would say, hey, if you had that checked by a doctor, because that's that's really where you should be at that point, if it's something along that lines. That is an urgent medical concern. Uh, You also do not want to have reflexology done on an open area, maybe like a cut or contusion. You don't want to dig in on a bruise. Um, you know, use your common sense, people. If it's swollen and hot, 
maybe rubbing it is not the best idea, okay? If you want more research on scientific studies done on reflexology, I do urge you to check out reflexologyresearch.net. Now, this particular website is not a secure website, but it also doesn't take your money or anything. Um, but it does have a listing out to about 380 reflexology research studies that are listed by category. So it actually will, um, <clears throat> excuse me, run you through um, a little bit of a synopsis, and then you can go from there and find more information. So even though it's not a secured website, it doesn't have a security certificate, it's not taking your money or your information. So you really, that really doesn't matter so much. Um, but yeah, reflexology, people. If your foot feels good, if your feet feel great, you are in a much better mood. If your feet hurt, you're going to be kind of salty. Alrighty, people. Hopefully that was informative. As I always say, It is time for the herb of the hour. And today I want to talk to you guys about evening primrose. Why do I want to talk to you about evening primrose? Well, because I have a shit ton of it growing in my backyard. Why do I have a shit ton of it in my backyard? Well, I think a bird pooped a seed out at one point. I mean, let's just put it flat out and bluntly right there. A bird spread a seed and last year I had some growing and I was being a lazy gardener and I let it go and it went to seed and now I have a shit ton. Okay, there we go. That's why. But you know, I left it there. I actually weeded in between the evening primrose, let it grow. It's all a good seven to eight foot tall now. There's some that are a little more like four foot tall but I let it grow and I weeded around and planted my tomato plants in between it. And I'm going to let it go and I'm going to exploit the gifts that nature have given me. And then we'll see if I ever let it happen again. But for now, we're going to roll with what's there because there's a plethora. So let's talk about evening primrose. And I am going to try the Latin name. I mean, like I could write it on a piece of paper I'm going to really try to say this correctly, but I'm sure there's going to be some botanist out there who lets me know that I butchered the Latin, but let's try it. It's Oneothera biennis. I think I'm pretty damn close there. Okay, so it's O-E-N-O-T-H-E-R-A. Next word, B-I-E-N-N-I-S. Okay, this plant, let's talk about where it grows. It is a species of a flowering plant in the family, oh God, more Latin, Ona Graciae. It's native to Eastern and Central North America from Newfoundland to West, all the way to Alberto, Alberta, Canada. Alberto. I have a friend named Alberto. I hope he hears this and laughs. But from Newfoundland to 
west all the way to Alberta, southeast to Florida, and southwest to Texas. Widely naturalized elsewhere in temperate and subtropical regions. It is commonly known as evening primroses. These suckers are super pretty when they bloom. Y'all, they got the prettiest little yellow flowers on the top that kind of look like buttercups, right? Like I just walk up to them and say, what's up, buttercup? But they're not. They are not buttercups. But that's what they make me think of. Um, they're edible. The whole damn plant is edible. So if you are into foraging and you are into wild edible plants, this stuff's for you, man. The seeds edible, the leaves are edible, the flower is edible, and the roots are super edible. So let's talk about the edible function of it, okay? Um, I have not had the leaves in anything. I, it just never occurred to me before doing this research that I could eat the leaves. The flowers are, eh, they're kind of sweet, very mild. They would make a pretty addition to a salad. They, um... Yeah, kind of like a sweetie mild flavor. So if you want to throw in some beautiful color, some yellow into your summer salad, go ahead. Throw them in there. Um, the leaves, they're okay. Nothing major. I, I mean, I can't really tell you that they taste just like lettuce or that they taste just like spinach or you can use them intermittently. They're one of those salad greens that I would not cook because I think the texture would be nasty. I'm a texture gal. Just saying. Cook spinach to me is the devil. Say whatever you want. Eat whatever you like. But cook collard greens is nasty as all get out. I will eat that stuff raw before I cook it. But I, I think that the texture to me on a cooked evening primrose green would just be but you can i've thrown them in fresh in salads the 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 flavor is negatable i mean it's kind of tastes like whatever dressing you put on it so i mean that's not a big hairy deal the root is what people really are looking for when they're harvesting and usually they want to get it in the fall on a second year plant or in the spring before it really re-sprouts very high. And after you spot these suckers growing in your in your flower beds and such, you get pretty good at picking out what they are. They're pretty pretty distinguishable after a little while. So you want to harvest them in the fall of the first year, early spring of the second year, before they get too tall. Um, they're very mild, so they kind of have like a bland carrot flavor with just a hint of black pepper. So they've got just, just the slightest bit of a bite on the backside. You can roast them. So, hey, like if you're doing a bunch of roasted vegetables, just throw in some evening primrose root with it. It's really a wonderful addition. Um, it can be a little fibrous, a little rough, but when you roast it or boil it or cook it and mash it up, I mean, have you ever had mashed rutabaga? If you've had a mashed rutabaga, you can handle a cooked mashed 
evening primrose root. So you may as well throw that in there. It, it, it's the variety of the foods that we eat that give us the best nutrition. So how do you find evening primrose? Um, I'm trying to think of the way to describe it. The best thing I'm going to tell you guys to do, because this is not a visual podcast, at least not yet, it's still all audio, Google it. Yes, Google it. Make sure you're looking at Onothera biennis and check out some of the pictures. Uh, The early spring, you in the first year of growth, you get kind of this basal rosette of foliage, right? So it kind of goes around in a circle. It's not like one or two cotyledon or leaves, the baby leaves that first sprout. It's not like one or two pop out of the ground. It kind of comes and opens up like a rosette that grows close to the ground. And then there's different layers to it. And as it grows up tall, it gets more and more layers, right? Like more floors to the skyscraper. It's often found in colonies. So where there's one, there's bound to be more. I've noticed in my own flower bed, if I find one, there's at least four more real close by. They're found in full sun. They're easiest to spot in the middle of the summer when the flower stalks start to pop up and they're six, seven. I guarantee you, I have some that have been in my flower bed that are eight feet tall. Guarantee it because they've grown through the top of the arbor that my grapes vine on and that is eight foot up. So most definitely. Sometimes there's a little bit of a red flush to the the bottom most or basal leaves of that rosette. It depends on the time of the year and the growing conditions and the, the, the temperatures, blah, blah, blah. The leaves are lance-shaped, two to seven inches long, with a prominent white midrib. They can be toothed or have a little bit of a wavy margin. Second-year growth includes a hairy stem that produces a large, four-petaled yellow flowers, approximately two inches in diameter. And there are multiple flowers on each stem. Or you could have two flowers that pop off, and then when those die off, You have two more on that stem that come in after that. You'll know when the flower is spent, they leave behind the sepals or the remnants behind them when the others on that same stalk open up. The foliage along the flower stalk is arranged alternately. So you're going to have, see if it was along the compass direction lines, you would have one on the north, one on the south. Then the next row down would be one east, one west. Then the next row down would be north and south. Next row, east and west. Blah, 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 blah. Back and forth like a set of Lego bricks, right? You are truly a nerd if you understood that reference. The tall dried stalk of evening primrose often remains standing all winter long. And you can use those to locate the growth of the new rosettes. So, yeah, and... I should have been more proactive about clearing it out last year. Like I said, sometimes I can be a really lazy gardener. And so I have evening primrose. But yeah, it's edible. 
But what about its benefits? Well, the biggest benefit that you're going to hear about in natural health is evening primrose oil. Evening primrose oil, often listed as EPO, is made from the seeds of evening primrose flowers. It's native to North America. Or, I already said that. People traditionally used this to deal with bruising, hemorrhoids, sore throats. The healing benefits are probably due to its gamma-linoleic acid. Gamma-linoleic acid is an omega-6 fatty acid. I know I first came in contact with uh, evening primrose oil when I was pregnant with my oldest son, which as of today was 28 years ago. It's been a while now, man. Evening primrose oil is generally taken as a supplement or applied topically. It's one of those supplements that sometimes is utilized when a woman is going through menopause, perimenopause, maybe in a position where some sort of omega-6 fatty acid might be beneficial. I mean, there's a lot of research on gamma-linoleic acid. There are possible benefits that are very popular in a lot of sources. So... While the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health states there isn't enough evidence to support using EPO for any health conditions, it's generally safe to use long-term. And some studies have highlighted areas of possible benefit, meaning that, hey, it looked kind of promising here and more studies are needed. But those areas where they've looked into it um, is that it may help ease acne. According to a 2022 study, EPO may help relieve specific side effects from the medication isotreated, whatever, Accutane. I'm not saying that generic name. If you were on generic Accutane, maybe, maybe you might want to look into that study from 2022. An older study in 2014 found GLA supplementation reduced inflammatory and non-inflammatory acne lesions. So, hey, like I said, it probably was a small sample number or something, but the evidence that they did find was kind of promising and says maybe we should pursue more, in more information here. Maybe we should keep going. Um, some evidence in other countries than the United States kind of point to the fact that it, it might ease eczema. 2018 study in South Korea concluded EPO improved eczema area severity index scores in people with mild eczema compared to placebo. Um, the it also notes the people who did the study noted that I'm going to say this, I'm going to read it right the way it says it, and then I'll decipher it to normal terms. Transepidermal water loss and skin hydration were slightly improved in the EPO group. So transepidermal water loss. So that's your dehydrated dry skin, right? And skin hydration. So right there is the dry skin improved slightly when using EPO. So they didn't look at the effectiveness of, of it used topically, 
but you know, hey, maybe there's something there. A lot of people tend to use it for overall skin health. Um, there has been a study in 2005 where they looked at oral supplementation of EPO, and it may help smooth the skin and improve elasticity, moisture, firmness, fatigue resistance. It may help relieve PMS symptoms, including breast swelling, irritability, bloating, acne, may help minimize breast pain. Dude, I am a female and I attest to the fact that PMS boob pain sucks. It's one of the best parts about being the age that I am right now is because I don't have that right now. Not usually. However, if you're a heavy caffeine drinker, maybe you might want to look into this. Uh, a 2021 study found that EPO was only as effective as a placebo compared to topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory NSAIDs, but it's unlikely to cause adverse side effects. And, you know, if you're looking, there's plenty of side effects to NSAIDs. So if it's as effective as an NSAID, just use the EPO. Why, why mess with the NSAID? That's my personal opinion. You know, you can do whatever you want. Um, there's research saying that it may help reduce hot flashes. Yo, that's an important thing. May help improve heart health. May have a beneficial effect on cholesterol levels. May help reduce nerve pain, such as hot and cold sensitivity, numbness, tingling, weakness. I mean, more studies are needed on that, but hey, it's pretty promising may help ease bone pain caused by rheumatoid arthritis, which is a chronic inflammatory disorder. So you see in a pattern here, people, everything that they've studied it on is an inflammatory disorder. It's almost like EPO might be promising for anything that is an inflammatory condition. However, that's just me making that assumption. Um, that's just me connecting those dots that there is not any substantial research and still being investigated. However, evening primrose oil comes from the seed of the flowers. It's good stuff. You should probably look into it. If you suffer from any of those things that they researched, inflammatory acne, um, PMS, hot flashes, any of those things. If you are a female over 40, you might want to look into evening primrose oil. You may want to look into that a little more. You may want to let the evening primrose that you were gifted from bird poop grow in your flower beds too. I know I'm going to be collecting what's growing in mine and hanging on to that, uh, for making teas and um, I am going to give the root a try this fall. And maybe that's something you might want to do too. Alrighty, guys. Thanks for tuning in. This has been your Herb of the Hour with Lori the Herb Chick and Evening Primrose. Thank 
thank you so much for tuning in for yet another episode of Holistic Badass. I hope that you got some great information during this. I hope that you thought it was so awesome that you hit the subscribe button, that you hit the like button, that you starred this sucker or saved it on your Spotify, your Apple podcast, your Google podcast, your pocket cast, wherever the hell you're listening to me at, just save this thing. Bookmark it. Subscribe. Let me just tell you that I appreciate each and every one of you listeners. And by subscribing and possibly sharing this out with someone that you know who might be interested, you are helping to further the career of an herbalist a homegrown herbalist who's out here just trying to share the love to the masses. So thank you for listening today and make sure that you come back and listen to me more. If you have any questions, you can reach me at lori.the.herbchick at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer any questions that I can. And if I cannot, I try to refer you to somebody who might be able to. If you have questions that you would like to have addressed on the podcast, please send them to me. If you have anything for Ask the Herb Chick, please put Ask the Herb Chick, all one word, Herb Chick is all one word, in the subject line. And that makes me zone right into that. I do have those separated out in my email, so I get to them first. Be sure to check out my website at herbchickonline.com. This time of year... Those fresh dried herbs are going to be hitting the shop on my website. First up are going to be the lemon balm, so act fast and get yours. Buy buy it all, man. Just buy it all. I don't know what the heck I was going to say, but buy it all. I save back enough for my mobile herb shop and I save back enough for me here at the house and I am happy to supply as much as I can to everyone else. Go forth and be that holistic badass, people. Bye-bye!